Well, last summer I took my uh, two girls, uh, Jordan and Shiloh, swimming to a local pool. And uh, while we were uh, walked into the swimming pool, I noticed that there were a lot of people swimming in the pool. And then there were people on the sides that were just lounging, taking it easy. And uh, we brought one of those little squeezy balls that can get wet and then you squeeze it out and you can throw it back and forth. And so the three girls or the two girls and myself were throwing this around. And we're in the shallow end and I, I look behind us and there's a little boy who's uh, kind of by himself and all of a sudden he, he starts struggling to uh, stay afloat. And uh, before long he, he actually goes underneath the water and I'm in the water at that time and I see all this going on, but it's almost like everything just slows down and I don't move. In fact, nobody moves. And pretty soon out of the corner of my eye, I see something that's red. A lifeguard had jumped in off the ladder they were on and dove into the pool and swam over to the little boy and grabbed him and got him up out of the water and he's coughing up water all over the place and they get him over to the side and he's okay and everything's fine. But I drove home that day and I started thinking to myself, why didn't I move? Like, why didn't I move? Why didn't anybody move? I mean, not even his own parents who were right off the side of the pool, jumped in to, to help him because he was drowning. We all saw it. This week I was uh, studying, and I, there's a social psychologist uh, called this bystander apathy. And what bystander apathy means, it's where individuals do not offer any means of help to a victim when other people are present. And what's very ironic about bystander apathy is that the more people there are, the less likely it is that anyone is going to jump in to try and help the victim. And I remember just asking myself, like, why didn't I go towards the boy? Why didn't I swim aside leave my own kids, and take a risk to try to help them. But nobody did, except for the lifeguard. You see, folks, there are people that are drowning all around you. Marriages are drowning. People are drowning in their finances. People are drowning in their faith. People are drowning in their doubts. People are drowning in alcoholism. They're drowning in grief. And my big question, you know, a lot of times I have like the big idea, but I, I need to ask you a question this morning. And I hope it haunts you actually this entire week. I hope you don't go to bed without being able to answer this question. Here's the question. Why is it that so many people stand by the pool and just watch? Why is it that so many of us, when people are 
drowning around us, why do we just stand by the pool and just watch? I mean, just think of people in your life, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family. You know they're drowning. You know they're going through some stuff. You know they're needing to come up to get some air, needing some taste of hope, needing something, anything. Would someone even see them? And the question is, why don't we engage? Why don't we take a risk and roll up our sleeves and move toward them? And I think the answer is pretty simple. And it's the fact that our culture hates risk. We don't want anything to do from our view of what is normal. We don't want anything to threaten it. My uh, eighth grade year of middle school, uh, my dad had decided we were going to move, and we moved from Marion, Indiana to Anderson. But we really didn't move to Anderson. We actually moved to the outskirts to a little place that uh, is a nice, safe place, or was at that time a real nice, safe place outside of Anderson called Edgewood. And when I was growing up as a kid, Edgewood was considered the safest place in all of Madison County. Edgewood had its own police station. It had its own fire station. Uh, Edgewood was one of the first communities. You you see on highways, they have those blue signs that says, uh, you know, this particular group or that group cleans this part of the highway. Well, Edgewood was one of the first places in all of Madison County that had one of those signs. There was no trash. There wasn't anything. And actually, people never really said they lived in Anderson. Like if you ask them, they'd say, well, where do you live? They'd go, we live in Edgewood. Now, I grew up Poe, okay? In other words, I couldn't afford the O-R, okay? It was just P-O, Poe, okay? And when we moved to Edgewood... I mean, and my dad got this new job, and he made twice as much money as he'd ever made. And we had our own house. We'd never had our own house. Uh, The whole time I lived, we always lived in a parsonage. And we moved in here. It was like a culture shock to me. And you'd walk around uh, the neighborhood, and there were these big homes, and uh, everything was safe. But I had a very difficult time kind of transitioning to this rich group of kids. And so... uh, You know, I remember going to their houses and they would have these dinners and there would always be, uh, some of these houses were so big that they would have dinners where there were more than one fork. And I would look down at the plate and I was like, man, crap, I'm in trouble. You know what I mean? Like, what am I going to do? And you would sit there and you'd have these dinners and everyone was there. And before long, I understood what everyone in Edgewood, what their motto was. And it was this, stay safe. At all costs. Stay safe at all costs. Now, this idea of taking risk might be fine for you not to do it if you live in a small little community, the safest community. But what about our military? Like in the military, uh, we should be risk takers, right? Should be all about how we're going to defeat the enemy. Well, I did some research this week, and what I found, which was ironic to me, 
that the term calculated risk actually found its history when it was first, uh, that concept was first talked about, actually happened in World War II. They would have these B-24 bombers, and generals would get together and they would decide how they would calculate the risk. And so uh, they would say, okay, should we send one or two or three or four? How many should we send for there to be some kind of uh, risk? And so they would either choose to send so many or not. And so there was a calculated risk. Uh, Today in universities, you you know, one of the uh, most prized majors that students go in today now is called risk management. There's an entire, like, career guided towards managing risk. I was talking with a woman this week who's a vice president of a bank, and uh, she was telling me, she's like, uh, that's her whole job. That's all she does. That's all she thinks about is how to lower risk, to manage them so that the bank is able to go forward. And this is okay for the military. It's okay for the business. But I started asking myself this week, what if the Christian faith starts a practice of risk management? What if we just start looking at people and say, you know what, some people are worth the risk and other people aren't worth the risk. What if we started promoting a gospel of calculated risk? What happens when the church becomes people who are afraid of taking risk? Now, the past uh, few weeks, if you're an avid sports fan, it's just been miserable. I mean, just absolutely miserable. I mean, the NFL is over, the Super Bowl is done, and March Madness hasn't begun yet. And sometimes you look at the television, if you're an avid sports fan, you're like, there's nothing to watch. And last Sunday, after I got uh, the girls down for their nap, I'm surfing through channels when all of a sudden, this person comes up on the screen. Anybody know who that is? Ashley Wagner. Now, Ashley Wagner is an ice skater. And I'm surfing through, and the best thing I can find last Sunday is ice skating. Now, I realize I just lost my man card for about, uh, you know, these next few minutes. So, uh, but women, I'll tell you, I've, I've been there with guys before. They'll never admit it, but sometimes they want to stop and kind of see what you're watching, okay? And so this was ice skating. And Ashley Wagner is a three-time national champion. She just won the U.S. championship. She has uh, more U.S. national championships than anyone since Michelle Kwan. And uh, she is going to the world championships at the end of this year. And I started thinking to myself, what if when she gets ready for the world championships, like the world is on her, and eventually she'll go to the Olympics as well, What if she gets to the center of the ice rink and she gets there and she chooses a song that I'm sure you've heard of before. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Okay? And let's imagine she gets there right in the middle of the rink. But instead of doing any twists or twirls or, you know, triple axles or backflips or any of that stuff. She just stands in the middle of the rink 
for the two hour or two minutes and 50 seconds of her short program and just goes, let it go, let it go, let it go, let it go. Okay. What if she did that? You know what would happen? When it came to the Russian judge, he'd put up a sign, 0.0, right? Then you'd go down to the Italian judge. The Italian judge would be like 0.0. And then you'd get to the U.S. judge. And, you know, since we're not as worldly as the rest of the world, 0.5. And everybody would be like, dude, what are you doing? She didn't do anything. It'd be like, I like the song, you know? Now, here's the question. Isn't it true about our life that every once in a while we get in the center of the ring, all of the light is on us, and we freeze? We just go frozen. We have an opportunity, we have a moment, we have a chance where we could showcase God's glory and His grace and His love, and sometimes we get at the center of the ice and we just go frozen. Think about sometimes the way that we pray. We're not big prayer riskers sometimes, are we? I guarantee this is a prayer that everyone has prayed before. Oh, God, keep me safe. Oh, God, please protect my family. Oh, God, let me be comfortable. Oh, God, let me marry the nicest, safest person there is in the world. Oh, God, let us have a family. But let the pregnancy and everything go fine. And let us have 2.5 kids because that's what everybody in the United States does. And let them go to a safe school. Let them go to the safest school as possible. Let them graduate from that school. Let them go on to college. Let them graduate from that. And then when everything's done and they get married and they have kids, let them live right beside us. So that we can keep them safe and we can protect them and we can take care of them. And I know it's going to happen, God, but one day, whenever my last breath is taken and I die, God, I do not want to die a painful death. Let me just die in my sleep. And then once I get to heaven and I get to see Peter and Jesus and I get to meet you, God, I just want to stand before you and I want to hear those precious words Well done, good and faithful servant. You lived a safe life. Is that what it says? You lived a safe life. And folks, that's what our culture tells us. Safety, comfort, don't risk. In fact, I think the biggest lie of the culture, but the culture gives it to us all the time, is don't risk. Especially when it comes to people. Don't risk. Don't step out. Don't fail. Don't put yourself out there. Don't be seen. Don't be known. Don't risk. Folks, this is what we are being taught. And this is what is being taught to our kids. There's only one problem. That if you ever read this book, the one thing that you'll find is that there is nowhere within Scripture, where it says, don't take risk. It's not a gospel of no risk. It's a gospel, a message in the New Testament, of people constantly being challenged to take risk. 
In fact, there are people that we read about in this book who they risk it all. Look at Paul. Paul is a guy in the New Testament, the second half of the Bible. He wrote over half the New Testament. He's considered one of Jesus' closest followers. But before he came to Christ, he actually hated Christians. In fact, he was present many times when Christians were killed. I bet you know some Christians you'd like to kill, right? Yeah. Well, this guy named Paul, he listens to God, and God calls him to take some risks. And many times God would tell him to go places where he had never been before. He didn't know what to do even. He just followed where God told him to go. But there were some things that happened to him, and we don't learn about that until he writes it. And here's just a few of the things that happened to this great risk taker. Three times beaten with rods. Five times whipped to the point of death. Imprisoned most of his life. Gone days without sleep. Gone without food or water. Been cold and naked. Shipwrecked three times. Worked and labored for almost no money. Stoned almost to death. Been exposed to death again and again and again. Folks, when Paul went somewhere, threats followed him. Whenever Paul stepped out, it was like danger occurred. And yet Paul said, there's nothing that I won't do to step out in faith. And many times when I listen to the things that he endured, look at all that stuff. I question myself and I'm like, why? Like, why would you do that? I mean, it's not like, you know, we could say, hey, this is what's going to happen to you if you follow Christ. And we'd have a whole bunch of people go, yep, count me in. Well, I was reading one of Paul's writings. I think I figured out why he did it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, he says this. For Christ's love, what's the word? What's the next word? Compels. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that One died for all, and therefore, all died. Folks, the reason why Paul could step out and risk over and over again was because why? Christ's love. Christ's love compelled him to do this. Paul knew that he was a murderer, filled with pride, filled with ego. He was trying to squelch the Jesus movement. He was all about status. But then one day he's walking down a road and Jesus comes to him and he asks him, Why are you persecuting me? Isn't there something better that you could do with your life? I've got something better for you, Paul. Here it is. And for the next few years, he becomes so overwhelmed with the love and the grace of God. That he goes to all of these different cities that God sends him to and he starts these little churches like the jar and he starts it and then he goes on to the next risk. And he starts another one and another one and another one. And he says, Christ's love, it like overwhelmed me so much. It controls me. It compels me to take risks. 
Because I believe, he says, that one died for all. Therefore, we've all died. Now, what did Paul die to? He died to his status. He died to his ego. He died to his own agenda. Then in verse 15 it says, And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. How many of you wear glasses or contacts? Anyone here wear glasses or contacts? Okay. As you can tell, I do. Now, if I take these glasses off, you're all blurry. You're very good looking, but you're very blurry, okay? And this is what Paul is saying. He's like, when I was living life my way, I saw everyone with a blur. I just saw an image, but I didn't take a risk. But when I came to Christ, all of a sudden he put a different lens on my sight. And now I see people as God sees people. And he says, I don't want to see people and just label people. I don't want to manipulate people. I don't want to just try to use people so that I can get to where I want to go. I never want to see people as trash. I want to see people as treasured people of God. Because people matter to God. And if people matter to God, then they should matter to me. And so he says, no longer will I look at this worldly view. Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. I love this verse. And this is one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Because what it says is, is that when we come to Christ, we are a new creation. It's like we have been rebirthed. Something new within us is here. All of the old, all of the past is gone. One of the hardest things in the Christian life is that people always want to keep going back into their past and dragging things back into it. And anytime you sense that, I want you to know it's not God's Spirit, the Holy Spirit speaking to you. It is Satan himself. Because Christ says that once you've come to me, you're a new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. But this is what Paul says. Not only is the new thing coming, but the new is not finished. It's not finished yet. Every one of us, folks, is a work in progress. In fact, could you turn to the person beside you and just tell them you're a work in progress? Now, let me say this. Some of you have more work to do than others, okay? But you're a work in progress. And God's not finished with you yet. The new creation is birthing something in us, helping us to understand that we are people of grace and people of truth and people of love. Uh, Many of you know Billy Graham, but I bet many of you do not know Billy Graham's mom, Ruth Bell Graham. And on her tombstone, this is what it says. You might not be able to read it, but on the bottom, it says, end of construction. Thank you for your patience. (laughs) 
the first celebration, none of them got it. Like, you guys are so much smarter than they are. And I love that. Here's a woman who spent her whole whole life, maybe the woman who, uh, when you think of the greatest mothers ever in the history of the United States and who she raised in Billy Graham. But she gave her life and she said, God, I allow you to form it and to shape it and to mold it however you want. And at the end of her life, she's like, finally done. Hey, God, thanks for your patience. Like, thanks for being patient. And every one of us is on a journey. And God is teaching us something new. Not to keep to ourselves, folks, but it is to give it away. Paul continues on saying, All this is from God who, what's the word? Next word. Reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of, what's it say? Reconciliation. That God was, what's the next word? Reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against themselves. And he has committed to us the message of, what's the last word? So what do you think he's really trying to talk about? Reconciliation. What's reconciliation? Reconciliation is when you have two different points of view. Two opposing views. And yet somehow, when they come together and they're reconciled, they become one. And this is the picture of what some of you have experienced. If you've given your life to Christ, this is what's happened. God was in heaven, and you are on earth. And you cannot be reconciled to God. It's two opposing views. A holy God and a messed up human being. So you cannot be reconciled with all your good deeds. It does not happen. So Jesus Christ came and he died on a cross and he was God's one and only son, the only perfect gift so that you, this messed up person down here, and this holy God could actually come together, two opposing views to be brought together and be reconciled. That's what Jesus did. But this is what happens. This a wonderful thing happens to us, and we get reconciled with God, and we get God, and sometimes people even put God and Jesus like in their pocket, put a little Jesus with me, I'll put him on my shoulder, I'll keep him all to myself. But we never give him what? And what Paul is saying is that you should have a different kind of lens that you put on once you become a Christ follower so that when you're going through your day, you look to see who is far from God so that you can help them get reconciled to the Father. And then they become reconciled in their relationships. And then they become reconciled in their own personal brokenness. That's why the benefits of following Christ, folks, is not just the fact that you're reconciled to God, but all of a sudden that ministry of reconciliation happens in your relationships. It happens in your inner being. Paul continues on in verse 20. We were therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be what? Reconciled to God. I love this because what Paul is actually saying, he's saying, hey, 
You're an ambassador. Think about that. The next time you know someone comes up, hey, what's your job? I'm an ambassador. Whoa. Like for the UN? Oh, no. The UN is not even. uh, For like the country? No, no, no. I'm an ambassador for Christ. Now, what's that mean? It means every single time you walk around this town, your neighborhood, your office space, everywhere you go, you go on the behalf of Christ. You're his ambassador. You represent him. When you go to work, you represent him. When you're in your neighborhood, you represent him. When you're at home, you represent him. When you go to McDonald's and the person is taking forever to take your order, you represent Christ. And when you go to Walmart... And there's that line where it says 20 items only and the person in front of you, you got two and they've got 200. You're Christ's ambassador. Everywhere you walk, you represent Christ. And you become these message bearers telling people you... You walk around with your life and you're like, be reconciled to God. Isn't it the best news of your life? I mean, like if you listed everything in your life, all your accomplishments, that you're reconciled to God, isn't that the greatest message you would want to share with anybody? Then Paul says this, God made him, who do you make? Jesus. Who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. That means that you would be right livers of God. Not the liver in your being, that you would live that way. That we would become people who would showcase what it means to be reconciled to God. To be right with God. And then in chapter 6 verse 1, he ends by saying... As God's co-workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in, what's it say? Not in vain. Start thinking about that this week. What does it mean to receive God's grace in vain? We know what it's like to be reconciled to God. We know what it's like to be co-workers of God, we know what it's like to be ambassadors of Christ. But when you hold on to that grace and you don't freely give it away, what Paul says is you are living that grace, what? In, in vain. You're taking the grace in vain when you don't move toward people to help them become reconciled to God. You take that grace in vain when you don't help people see that they could have access to the Father. So many people are like, I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough. No, 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 no. Every time you see a person and they have that look or they have that image that they're not good enough and you don't approach them and let them know that they're good enough because of what Jesus did for them, you take that grace in vain. We take that grace in vain whenever we have a calculated risk. I don't know about that person. I don't think they're quite worth it. 
We take grace in vain. When we stand by the pool and someone's actually drowning and we just watch. We take grace in vain when we're not willing to engage with our friends or to walk across the room at our workplace when people are drowning. We take grace in vain when fear overwhelms us and we don't take risk. But Paul says this. You know why I can take risk? It's because something's captured me. You know what's captured me? Christ's love has captured me from the top of my head to the bottom of my feet. It compels me, and I will not live this grace in vain. Now, for the rest of our time, I just want to share with you real quickly some commonalities of what I think are some of the greatest risk takers in the world. And I kind of uh, put this together in an acronym called R-I-S-K, risk. Yeah, I know, real original, huh? So uh, here's the first one. Uh, R, great risk takers believe this, that reconciled people reconcile people. Reconciled people reconcile people. This is where people who've been captured by God's love will do anything within their power to reconcile people to God. And the reason they do this is because they remember that there was one who took a risk on them. So reconcile people, reconcile people. The I stands for instinctively curious. Great risk takers are instinctively curious. Every person that they meet, they're fascinated with them. They go to people and they don't do this. What do you do? Oh, what do you do? Uh, What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? You know why? Because they don't care what you do. What they care about is you. Who are you? What is the deepest desires of your life? What do you long for? What do you want in this life? They want to see this person as God sees them. Again, they've already decided, hey, I don't see people very well, so I need God's lens. But once I see it, then I'm instinctively curious to know who they are and what's going on in their life. And they ask great questions. When everybody else wants to move on to the next person, they're still standing right there asking more questions because they're curious. The next letter is S. These people are constantly showing God's love. It's just like in their DNA, wherever they're at, to show God's love. They don't really care how much time it takes. They don't care how much it costs. They don't care if they have to sacrifice something. These kinds of risk takers go to great lengths to show God's love. These are the first ones that when a person is in crisis that they take the risk to go and to actually be with the person. They're the first ones that don't forget your birthday once they know. They go to parties. They go watch your kids. They'll take a person out to eat several different times, and they'll pay. Wouldn't that freak out one of your colleagues this week? If you took a risk, you took them out to eat? Hey, I got it. You got it. Holy cow. 
And they just have this ability to show love and show love and show love. And they do it because they have a different lens, a different perspective that they look at things from. And that's what great risk takers do. Lastly is the K, kingdom ambassadors. The greatest risk takers that I know in the faith are those who represent the kingdom of God. Uh, My wife Jennifer and I, for our 10th wedding anniversary, I took her to New York City. Neither one of us had ever been there before. And we stayed at this real trendy hotel because I thought, man, this is, you know what, this is going to be like honeymoon city, baby. And so uh, we stayed at what is called the W. And what the W is known for, at least at that time, uh, you'd pick up the phone and you'd call. And whenever another person on staff would be on the phone, they would go, whatever, whenever, whatever, whenever. And I started thinking about it, that kingdom ambassadors are whatever, whenever people. Whatever you need, whenever you need it, however it needs to happen, these are the kind of people that take risks to make it happen. Now, I grew up in a church where um, people uh, lived out of faith. They just never told anybody about it. I mean, what I learned was how to be a good moral person, how to obey the Ten Commandments, how to love your neighbor as yourself, to be kind to other people. And I did my best to do all of this. I just wasn't ever taught how to share my faith. And so I went through most of my uh, early life and teenage years uh, basically living a life and hoping that people would come up to me and go, Hey, can I go to church with you? (laughs) Guess how many people ever did that as I tried to live this holy life? None. Not a single one. You don't live a life that everyone watches and then you think someone's going to come up and go, Hey, can I go to church with you? Doesn't happen. So in my mid-twenties, I decided, you know what, that didn't work so well, so what I really need to do is just tell people about Jesus. And so I learned about the four spiritual laws and uh, five things how to do this and that, put a little legalism in there, you know, put that in there, make people feel bad, put a little guilt, a little arm twisting, and you can get people to be like, yeah, I guess I should go to God. But my life looked horrible. And so the best risk takers that I know not only live out their faith, but they also talk about their faith with others. This is what kingdom ambassadors do. They represent Jesus and what he's for and what he's about. Now, I have a feeling that in a group this size, there are some of you that you like to talk about faith. You love to talk and debate and understand that kind of stuff. But if we were to take an internal look of your life and how you're actually living it, You might struggle with it. I bet there's another group of people who are here that are scared to death to ever tell anybody anything. And so you don't want to take a risk. You just think that you'll live this way and that through your living out a Christian life that people will look at you and they'll go, Hey, can I go to church with you? It doesn't happen. But kingdom ambassadors, they live both. They speak the kingdom causes and they live the kingdom life. Folks, I want us to be a church of risk takers. 
And I just wonder for some of you, when was the last time you took a risk of faith? Now, when you walked in, uh, you should have received a card uh, that looks like this. It'll come up on the side screens. And uh, it actually says, who took a risk on you? Maybe it was a person who invited you to the jar. Maybe it was someone who told you about Christ. Maybe it was uh, someone who saw Christ in you for the first time. But who is it? Who's the first person or a person that took a risk on you? I was thinking about it this week. That outside of my parents, the person who took a risk on me more than anyone else was a woman by the name of Thelma Heilman. Uh, We affectionately called her Grandma Heilman. And she was a Sunday school teacher. And she was my Sunday school teacher for years. And she talked about Jesus' love and truth. She lived it out. She would invite us in. And when we got in trouble, sometimes she even bailed us out. Remember one time we had communion that we were supposed to have that morning for church. And me and a buddy of mine went in and we ate almost all the communion. And she had this paint stirrer that she used as a paddle. And we thought for sure she was going to come and use that. We broke the paddle. And she came in and she loved us. And she took the fall. And who do you need to risk for? That's the second question. So I put down this morning, Grandma Heilman, that's who took a risk on me. But who will you take a risk on? And I want you to write this down. Don't just like sit there and not do something about it. Take this card. Who took a risk on you? And who should you take a risk on? So we're going to give you a minute to do that right now. And the faster you do it, the quicker you get to go home. Uh, If you have, if you need a card, just raise your hand. Uh, Our greeters are back here. They would love uh, to give you one. Maybe it's a coworker, neighbor, friend, someone you connect with regularly. Who could you take a risk on?
Well, uh, Easter is in four, work, four weeks. Easter is kind of like the church's Super Bowl. It's like everyone wants to go. But what's hard with the Super Bowl is that sometimes everybody doesn't have a ticket. Well, this is the thing, folks. The tickets are free. And the question is, who will you take the risk on? And for some of you, maybe you got a relationship. Maybe it's your one 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 You know, we started at the beginning of the year. Think of one person who's far from God. Pray for them for one minute at 1 o'clock each day. Maybe that's your person. But whoever's on this card, for some of you, you know them well enough, it would not be that hard for you this week to call them, text them, Facebook message them. Hey, you want to go to church with me next week? Yeah. Okay, I'll meet you out front. We'll meet in the lobby. We'll come in here. We'll sit together. They warm up a little bit. They get to Easter. Some people that you know, they're going to need a few weeks. Like they're going to need the Easter invite. And then all this prayer that you have behind it for them to come. And sometimes with the two, two of the guys that I reach out to are guys. And I always do this. Right before Easter, I'm like, hey, you come to church on Easter? No, I'm not going. It's like, dude, are you an American? Like, I'll call out their patriotism, you know, at that point. They're like, well, yeah, by God, I am an American. I was like, well, every good American goes to church on Easter. And maybe some of you, the person you know, they've got a hurt, they got a habit, they have a hang-up, they're addicted to something, and you could invite them to celebrate recovery. And not just say, hey, we got this thing at church, what, you should, you're messed up, you should go to it. No, what you do is you say, hey, I wanted to know if you would go with me and we'll go and do this together. And you sit with them and you do it for a few weeks and you see their life change. I'll be teaching at Celebrate Recovery this Thursday. So if you got a friend, I hope that they'll come. And so um, I was thinking about how we would close. And I kept thinking, you know, some people probably didn't write anything down. They're like, dude, I checked out like halfway ago, you know, when you were talking about ice skating, I was done, you know. But maybe some of you followed all the way through. And what I'd like you to do, if you're willing to take a risk with whoever the person is in your life that you wrote on this card, between now and Easter, I invite you to stand. Don't stand just to stand, but if you're willing to take a risk between now and Easter, I want to invite you to stand. So whoever wants to stand, who's saying, hey, I'm going to take the risk. Uh, It might be a phone call. It might be an invite. Whatever it is, I'm willing to take the risk that you'd be willing to stand. And I'm going to invite the prayer team to come up. And uh, if you need some help to get some courage to take the risk, these people would love to pray with you. And so now I'm going to invite everyone to stand. We're just going to close out in prayer. And um, I just want to challenge you that it might be a phone call, a text, whatever. But but I really, <laughs> this might sound kind of mean, but I really do kind of mean it because I think lost people are worth it. I hope that some of you have sleepless nights. 
until God puts someone in your life that you could take a risk on. Like it's that important to me. Because people matter to God. They matter more than anything else. And it's my hope and prayer that some of you will take some risk in these next four weeks. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for reconciling us to you. That you sent your most precious gift, your one and only son, who went and died on a cross and rose again three days later. The thing that we're going to celebrate in just a few weeks. And it was all that, and the whole reason was so that we could be reconciled to our Heavenly Father. And so God, I just pray that in the days and weeks ahead in this month and leading up to Easter that you would stir inside people to take some risk to reach out to send a text an email to have dinner to Facebook an old friend see what life is going on to take some risk so that people would be brought closer to you So, Holy Spirit, would you move in our lives just as you did this morning throughout this week, which we know you will. Would you help us to tap into it so that your name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name.